welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Good morning again. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 38 this morning, where it's going to take us a second to get there, but I promise I'm going to get there. There's a new term that's been going around the past several years called the GOAT. And the GOAT is something that everybody wants to be. It's an acronym. It means the greatest of all time. And so when nobody wants to be called a GOAT, everybody wants to be the GOAT. Now when you think about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, who do you think about? I was going to say, some of you are going to be real holy on me, and you're going to be real spiritual, and you're going to be like, Jesus, he is the greatest of all time. Amen. Hallelujah. Welcome to church. The rest of us sinners went elsewhere, unfortunately, but Christ is it. You win. You're correct. The rest of us sinners went to like sports players, right? Like the the term we usually hear with the GOAT is Tom Brady at New England. He is the best quarterback or was the best quarterback ever. I don't know. I don't watch the NFL, but that's where it comes from. But I was thinking basketball. So who is the GOAT of basketball? I was going to say, if you say anybody besides Michael Jordan, get out. You're not welcome. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm being relatable. I'm connecting. I don't even keep up with the NBA. It is Michael Jordan. He is the greatest of all time. There is no comparison. I really think the greatest athlete of all time for his time in his sport is Michael Jordan. Now, some of you guys got to watch Michael Jordan play in the NBA. You remember those days when Michael Jordan rocked the world? I I pulled up his stats the other day. Listen to this. 32,292 points he scored in the NBA. That's a lot of basketballs going through hoops for Michael Jordan. Now, some of you guys remember that, the dunks, the unstoppable, you know, Michael Jordan, the passion of playing, and then some of us are a little younger, and and we remember Michael Jordan for a different reason. It's because he teamed up with Bugs Bunny and saved the world from aliens and Space Jam. Yeah, you guys know what I'm talking about? That's that's the movie. You guys think I'm joking. My wife and I, we did this for a date night one night. We bought Space Jam and we sang all the songs and all that and just we, we Space Jammed all night. But Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time when it comes to basketball. I think we can kind of agree on that roughly. And if not, you can be wrong. That's okay. But he is the greatest of all time. And anytime you hear a, a interview with Michael Jordan where he tells you about his life, It comes back to this one pivotal moment when he was in 10th grade and he was trying out for the the varsity basketball team. And and he recounts that there were these two lists that were put up. There's the the varsity team, the the, the main team, and then there's the junior varsity team. There's going to be 15 names on each list. And he was so excited to go see his name on that varsity team list. And, And when he got there, he went down the list and his name wasn't on there even though other players of the same age of him at 10th grade had made it. His name was on the junior varsity list. Now, let's be honest. It worked out for him, right? But he still recounts, listen to this, the greatest basketball player of all time tells us that one of the pivotal moments in his life is when he felt rejected. He t- he's braver than I am. He tells me at a, as a 15-year-old boy, he went home and shut his door and laid in the floor and cried. He was so heartbroken. And that tells me that if the greatest of all time can feel like an outcast over basketball, I think that everybody probably has that moment at some time that we feel like we are an outcast. Unwanted, used, broken, unlovable. You guys ever felt like that? Yeah, me too. 
I think it's I think it's all of us. And maybe it's when we're in high school and maybe we were unpopular. Maybe we've had family drama and we're unwanted by our family. Perhaps it's when we watch TV and, and we look at these these models and these actors and actresses and say, I, I can't look like that. I, I could never be that charismatic. I could never be that lovable. Nobody would ever chase me like those guys chase those women in those Hallmark movies. We, we think, man, we must be unwanted, unlovable for some reason. But, but here is the purpose of this sermon series we're going to start today. It's called Outcast, and we're going to look at feeling like an outcast, an outcast in the Bible. And I'm just going to go ahead and give you a spoiler alert. We can actually skip it. God has a heart for the outcast. And when we feel like an outcast, when we feel broken, when we feel unwanted or unlovable, Christ says the exact opposite. He says, you're all of those things. You're wanted, and you're loved, and you're useful, and you're purposeful, and I care for you. And that's what we're going to be looking at is some of these stories about outcasts in the Bible. Now, I promised you Genesis 38. Hang tight there. Let me go to Matthew 1 first. I'm not going to read it, but let me explain. Matthew is starting to tell the story of Jesus Christ, and, and he wants to introduce who Jesus is, and he's going to talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ. He's going to talk about the miracles that Jesus did. He's going to recount the, the sermons that Jesus preached all the way to cross where Jesus died, and then three days later, Jesus comes back to life. He, he's going to go over all of that in Matthew, but he, he's, he's trying to set the stage for who is Jesus and where did he come from, and, and Matthew was a tax collector. At, at a time with no computers and no calculators, that means this man could find a penny in a river of nickels. I mean, he could keep meticulous details down to the to the percentage point of money that people owed in taxes. And so it's no or it's no surprise to us that Matthew is going to start his gospel keeping track of the small details. And he starts in Matthew chapter 1 with something called a genealogy. And what he does is he takes the genealogy of Joseph, and we'll talk about Joseph here in a second, and he traces it all the way back to Abraham just to set the point for the Israelites, for the people who are going to read this, is this is where Jesus comes from. Now, let me address this real quick. He, he tracks it down to Joseph, who is Jesus's stepfather or adopted father, because the Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin. Mary was the mother and God was the father. There was, there was no earthly blood father, but he tracks this lineage down to Joseph. And here, here's the reason for that, is that this time lineage was tracked through the man. And even though Joseph was not Jesus's biological father, Joseph, at that time, was Jesus' um, legal father. He, he was, I would call him, I've heard it stepfather all of my life. I would call it his adopted father after I've studied this. He was his adopted father because he was married to the mother of Jesus. And so Matthew wants to track down and say, this is, this is where Jesus comes from, all the way from Abraham down through King David, tribe of Judah. Here is where Jesus comes from. And in this list, there are 47 names that link Jesus Christ all the way back to Abraham. It tells us his whole family tree. You guys ever get on that Ancestry.com thing? You go on there and it's like you tell them who your parents is. I've got a student that's on this right now. And he comes in every day. He's like, Mr. Coates, my great-great-grandfather in 1852 had this that he left. I'm like, good deal. Do your homework. You know, okay, you know, if, if you can do that, you can do anything else. But it was like that for the Israelites, for the Jews. They kept up with these genealogies. So this was very important to set the story for Jesus Christ. 47 names linking Jesus to Abraham. And five of them, five of them don't fit. In this list, in this genealogy, there are 42 men listed and only five women. 
And ladies, I don't want to insult you. I'm just going to tell you historically how it was. At the time that this was written, women were not listed in genealogies. That, that was passed down through the father, through the paternal rights. And it's kind of the same way today, isn't it? Like, like when we get married, the, the wife usually takes the, the name of her husband. And, and generally the kids carry on the name of the husband. It's kind of the same way in our society. So even though this sounds odd, it's not that odd. And so that brings us to this question. If genealogies were always men... Why five women? This is a place of honor. This is a place, you, you are being linked eternally through God's holy word to Jesus Christ as a predecessor of him. These women must be something. They've got to be powerful spiritual women. They did some great things for God to give them this place of honor in this genealogy. That's what I would expect. But that, that would be wrong. As we look at these stories of these five women, what we're going to be doing over the next five weeks, what, what we find out is that they're, they're rough and they're outcasts and, and they have messy lives and they make mistakes and they are not women of honor at all. They're regular people who made lots of mistakes and lived horribly broken lives as outcasts of their time. And we're going to look at these stories, and I just want to warn y'all, some of these stories are ugly. We're, we're, we're going to try to keep it like, like kid-friendly in here, but some of these things deal with some really, really hard topics. Some of these stories deal with, with people being abused. Some of these stories deal with people being used. And yet, for some reason, God takes these outcasts and he gives them this place of honor in this genealogy in Matthew 1. And I want to track down why God does that. So we're in, in Genesis 38. Instead of reading the whole chapter, let me tell you what's going on. We're introduced to a man named Judah. Judah is going to be kind of the father of this story. If you, if you want to know why he's important, you have Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish faith. Abraham is, um, made, or God makes a covenant with Abraham that says, Abraham, if you will follow me, my, my, uh, my will will be with your people. I will have a covenant with all of your offspring forever, and, and that's going to be my people. And out of that people, I'm going to do something special. And we now know that he He's talking about bringing Jesus to the world. And so Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob, becoming known as Israel, has 12 sons. And one of those sons is Joseph. We all know Joseph, right? Bright coat, gets sold to Egypt, fun guy. But there's all these other brothers who we don't hear much about. But they become the heads of these tribes. And Judah is one of those other brothers. And so that's where we're at. It's going to start telling us about Judah and what he does. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 6 here. And it's going to tell us this story of a lady named Tamar. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. And Er, Judah's firstborn was, firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord slew him. And Judah said unto Onan, Go in unto thy brother's wife and marry her, and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that uh, the seed should not be his. And it came to pass that when he went to his brother's wife, that he spilled it on the ground, lest he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore he slew him also. Now there's a lot in there, and you're kind of already going like, ooh, Brian, that's a, that's a weird story. Are you really going to talk about that? Yes, I'm going to. We're not going to hide from the Bible. It's going to be awkward for me. You guys will be okay, but it's going to, we're going to make it through. So, so listen to what happens here. We have J uh, Judah gets married and he has three kids. The, the oldest of, him, of the kids is named Er. It's E-R. I thought it was Er. I actually looked it up. It's pronounced Er. Er has, is the oldest of the three sons, and Judah decides it's time for you to get married. You're a young man. You need a wife. You need to make your life. And so he finds a wife for him named Tamar. 
Now, Tamar is, or I'm sorry, Tamar. I keep saying Tamar. I'm going to do that all day. Tamar. Tamar is kind of just thrown into the story. We don't know much about her. We don't know where she come from. We don't know whether she liked it. But what we do know is that Judah picked her for his son. That's how it worked back then, is, is the father would find a wife and buy her, basically, for her son. There was something called a bride price. And what that was, was that the, the father of the groom would give money to the father of the bride to basically offset the cost of the father of the bride losing a family member who was a worker in that society. And so Judah gets to pick his wife's, or I'm sorry, his son's wife. Aren't you glad it doesn't work that way nowadays? <laughs> like, like parents are notoriously bad for picking people for you to be romantic with, right? I think everybody in here has a story of a parent telling them, it's like, why don't you date that neighbor girl? She's, she's your age. Don't you have third period English with her? She seems really sweet. And you're like, yeah, she's cute. And I have third period English with her. But she's not sweet. Everybody hates her. Like, but, but your parents see her as that little like second grade girl they grew up with. And like, oh, she's so sweet. You should date her. And no. Uh, ladies, for you, it's probably a little bit more. It's like, that guy in church, he, he, he's kind of cute and got a good smile, doesn't he? You, sh you should try to talk to him. And, and the cute guy at church looks and sounds like Gomer Pyle off the Andy Griffith show, right? Like parents are horrible at picking wives. And luckily we don't have to deal with it, but that, that's, how, that's how it worked back then. And so Air has this, this relationship with her. And, and all we know about Air is, is just that he was wicked. Aren't you glad that's not how God remembers you in the Bible? What, did he do anything good? He was wicked. That's, he gets one sentence and he dies. And think about the situation that Tamar is in. Being married to a wicked man and, and everything that that may or may not entail. It doesn't tell us what it is, but we can guess what it's like to be married to a wicked man. Some of you are sitting here thinking, I'm living that right now, Brian. No, 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 no. You're, you're, married, you're married to an unpleasant person and, and an unintelligent person. It's not the same thing as wicked, okay? But being married to a wicked person, he, he probably drank a lot. He, he may have very well abused her. No doubt he cheated. That's like the staple of wickedness. And, and this is Tamar's life, is married to a wicked man. But, but God comes in and, and he sees how wicked Er is and, and he kills him. He kills him. Now this is something that we kind of need to, you know, deal with a, a messy truth here is that God is love and, and God has lots of patience and God doesn't want anybody to perish but in both the Old and the New Testament there are times when somebody gets to a point and God goes that, that's enough that's it and, and that's what he did with Air here and so now we have Tamar she is a widow of a wicked husband she may have even been relieved we don't know but she's now a widow with no husband and no kids and in this society there was nothing worse there was nothing worse for a woman to have no male to take care of her. She, she would end up almost definitely homeless. And so at this time, there's something called Leverite marriages. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our Through the Motion series. And what that means is that it was just an accepted custom that if a brother died and left a widow behind, that the next brother in line would marry her. And then he would have a kid with her, and that kid would be raised legally as the son of the first brother. So just like we talked about with Jesus, there's the biological father would be the second brother, but the legal father would be the first brother. And with that comes all of the things like birthrights and inheritance. And so, so when Tamar uh, married Onan, Onan's looking at this and he's going, okay, so I've got a second wife here. Now, as it stands now, I'm first in line to inherit everything my dad has. All, all of the things that, that dad's gonna pass down to his first in line, that goes to me. But the second I have a kid with this woman, the second I have a male child, he now becomes the one who's going to inherit everything. And Onan, he, he had this wicked scheme in his heart. 
He said, I'm not going to have a child with her because I want it. It's pretty selfish, right? And so without going into too much details, he keeps practicing this form of contraception, making sure that he does not have children with her. And it tells us something about Onan. Like, we know Ur was wicked, Er was wicked. Onan, also wicked. Because the only reason that their physical relationship exists between the two of them is for the purpose of having a child. And yet he continues the physical relationship with this woman and refuses to give her a child. To me and to our society today, I think we can very safely say that, that Tamar is a victim of being exploited at the very least and maybe worse. We could probably find some, some worse words for that. Now, now, God sees this as, once again, wicked. God, God sees this as, as something that he's not going to put up with. And it's not because what they were doing was necessarily wrong. It's because this man had a wicked, selfish heart that instead of taking care of this woman who was his wife, he decided to use and manipulate her. And so God kills the second brother. God kills Onan. And that brings us to, the, to our first take-home truth today. Is this, is that God sees and has a heart for the outcast. God sees and has a heart for the outcast. Listen carefully. When you feel like an outcast, God sees you. And God has a heart for what you're dealing with. And God has a heart for your problems. And he loves you just the same as he always has. And I can prove that scripturally because what it tells us is that God sees someone who should be insignificant. Tamar, insignificant, shouldn't have mattered. And God sees her plight and sees what she's going through. And he bells her out of it. And so God sees and has a heart for the outcast. And in this case, like many others, God has moved to action. And that brings us to a question, maybe, maybe the question for Christians. Well, Brian, if God has a heart for the outcast, if he's, if he's capable and willing to, to protect outcasts, then why, why does the world still have outcasts? Why are there still people who are hurting and being used and broken and exploited in our world? Why, why is there so much evil running about? If God sees these people and he loves these people, why isn't it all fixed? I was speaking with a gentleman just a couple weeks ago, and, and the conversation turned to God, and, and I asked him, I said, oh, what about you? Are you, you know, are you a Christian? You know, do, do you know God? And he goes, yeah, we're not doing so hot right now. I was like, oh, that's, that's not a good place to be. Why? What's wrong? He said, well, I'm an EMT, and, and he just kind of recounted some of the things he had been experiencing, some of the calls he'd been on, and he said, I just don't see how God can let that happen, and so I'm, we're not talking right now. It's the question that we struggled with all of our life, and I wish I could stand up here and be like, I've got the answer, and... I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. As you get closer to God and you learn to trust him more, what you come to the conclusion of is I don't know and I don't understand, but God does. And at some point that becomes enough. I say, well, Brian, I've seen some bad things. I've seen some bad things too, y'all. But God knows. And he's got a plan. And I don't know if this works for every particular example, but I think that a lot of times when we feel like outcasts, when we're broken, when we're being used, when, when things aren't going our way, I think it's a little bit like this. I've got this uncle, Uncle Bob. I didn't make that up. I really have an Uncle Bob. He lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and he has the body of a Greek god. Like, this is an uncle I hate. I mean, he, he, he works out all the time. He's not the kind of man that you would see, like, walking down the street like a giant muscle guy, but he is just like, his, his, his biceps are huge and rock hard, and he eats perfectly. You could not get this man to eat a piece of pizza if you tied him to a chair. He is a health nut. He's going to go to the gym every day, and growing up, I thought Uncle Bob has got to be the strongest, most muscular man in the world. 
he, he's got to be, actually, I thought he put on a cape at night. There's only superheroes have bodies like that. There's no way he doesn't put on a cape at night. But, but here's what I found out about Uncle Bob as I grew older, is that Uncle Bob come up from a family where all the men have an extreme health problem, and most of the men in his family die very, very early. And so Uncle Bob, at a young age, he realized that this weakness in his body, this weakness in his body had to be managed or he probably wasn't going to live to be very old. And so at a very young age, he picked up a very healthy lifestyle and became one of the strongest men I knew. Listen carefully. The weakness that he experienced in his body led to him becoming stronger. And I think that there are times in our lives when the weakness that God allows us to have in our life is meant to make us stronger. And there's still times when I'm going to say, I feel like that's unfair. There's times when I cry out to God, I'm like, God, you've got to do better than this. But honestly, every time I look back on it, I realize God was working for a better purpose. And I can't explain every evil in our world, but I can tell you this, I trust God with all my heart. And he's working for a better purpose. Because see, the Bible has this theme in it, is that God has plans for outcasts. Outcast shepherd boys become kings in the Bible. Orphans put in baskets and floated down rivers become some of the mo- one of the most prolific leaders we've ever had in Moses. Fishermen and thieves become disciples and powerful in the kingdom of heaven. Outcasts have a special place to God. And sometimes he's just working on getting us there. And just because you're an outcast right now doesn't mean that God's done with you. It's proof that God's not done with you. This is where Tamar is. She's, she's widowed twice. She has no children, and there's a third brother, Shalah. That's, that's, that's his name, Shalah. But Judah comes to her, and he says, look, here's the deal. Um, uh, he, he's too young to marry you yet. He, he can't give you a son yet, so uh, why don't you go back to your dad's house and live with him for a while, and, and I'll call for you when he gets old enough, and you, and you can marry him, and then you'll have kids. And the Bible tells us that Judah actually had kind of a wicked motive in his heart. Judah looked at this and goes, this woman's cursed. <laughs> Every son of mine that marries this woman dies. I got to get rid of her. And so the Bible gives us this indication that Judah was telling a lie. He had, he had no plan of ever calling her back to marry the third son. And so here we have a woman with no children, no husband, sent back to her father's house, a disgrace to her family. Can you imagine, can you imagine how broken she felt? How unloved she felt, how unfair she felt like life was being to her, that, that her, uh, her father-in-law who had responsibility for her had, had just shunned her, that she had lost everything, forgotten, broken, and alone, and desperate. You ever been desperate for anything? Desperation makes us do one thing. Stupid. That's, that's, that's the only answer. When we're desperate, we do stupid things. It's the truth. Thank you. It is 100% the truth. Desperation, I just, I didn't know if I was the only one. Everybody else in here is like, I've never been that way, Brian. Desperation makes us do stupid things. My wife is addicted to this show, Survivor. You guys ever seen the show, Survivor? It's, it's, a, it's a reality show, and what they do is they take all of these people, and they drop them off on the island, and they pretend they're castaways, and they compete. In every episode, somebody goes home, and then they're all trying to get to be the last person on the island because they get a million dollars. And I can tell you with absolute authority that, that Survivor has been on for the past 20 years years and that there are 40 epi- or 40 seasons of Survivor and my wife has watched at least 38 of them. I mean it's just it's, it's, it's an addiction. Y'all pray for us at my house okay? But I love, I've got to where I kind of get into it because these, these people are on this island. They don't take showers. They don't take baths. They're around each other all the time and they don't have food. Sometimes I give them like a bag of rice or a bag of beans or something and that's all the food they get. And towards the end of the show when there's like 8 or 10 of them left, they have the, the auction episode. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
I'll, I'll tell you about it. It's awesome. So they give these kid, these guys on this island envelopes with $500 cash. Okay, and then and, and this is their money. They give it to them. It's for you. You keep it. And I'm thinking $500, that's tires on a car. That's bills. That's, I don't know, play, toys, new guns, whatever I want, right? And so that's a lot of money. And then they sit them down in front of this auction table, and they auction off food items. And it's ridiculous what people are paying. I'm talking uh, $200 for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Desperate and hunger, I'll spend an absurd amount of money on a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. $100 on a Coke and popcorn. $500 on a hamburger. I mean, these people are throwing this money away. And I'm sitting at home going, ah, send it to me if you're giving it away. But when you're desperate, it causes you to bypass all of the sense in your head. And that's where uh, Tamar is. She's desperate at this moment, and we're going to bypass all of the sense in her head. And that's our second take-home truth is desperation finds us in outcast moments. Desperation finds us in outcast moments, and we're going to do something stupid. Uh, understand this. You are more likely to do something stupid when you feel broken. And, and just be aware of that. I'm not getting on to you. I, I'm the king of doing stupid things. But when you feel broken, when you feel like an outcast, that's when Satan's going to come knocking on your door. That's when he's going to tempt you to do something stupid. That, that's when you're going to do something that you'll look back on and go, why? Why did I do that? And it is, it's in the root of this, this thinking here that, number one, I have the ability to fix things. That's why we start doing stupid things as we get desperate. We go, I've got to be able to fix this. I have the ability to fix this. And that leads us to our second thought when we get desperate is if I have the ability to fix things, I must also have the responsibility to fix things. And the truth is neither the ability or the responsibility to fix some circumstances in our lives fall on us. Because God has the ability to fix things. If we had the ability, we wouldn't be in these situations in this first place. But God has the ability to fix these things in our lives. And if he has the ability, it is his honor to have the responsibility. Listen, neither of those belong to you. And if you find yourself in a broken moment, in an outcast moment, and you feel yourself getting desperate, remember, it's not your responsibility. And you don't always have the ability to fix it. And that means that God wants it. Now, this is where Tamar is. She's in the same place we've all been. She's desperate and she does something stupid. This, this news comes to her. It says Judah's going down to this city and he's going to go see his sheep being sheared. And we're going to pick up our story in verse 14 here. Listen, listen to what she does. And she put her widow's garments off from her and covered her with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which is by the way of Timoth. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given unto him to wife. When Judah saw her, he thought her to be a harlot, because she had covered her face. And he turned unto her by the way, and said, Go to, I pray thee, let me come in unto thee. For he knew not that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What wilt thou give me, that thou mayest come into me? And he said, I will send thee a kid from the flock. And she said, Wilt thou give me a pledge, till thou send him? I, I told you, I told you this was a messy story. And, and, I, and I told you desperation causes you to do stupid things. And, and this, is, this is where Tamar gets to. She, she hears this, this news that, that Judah recently widowed, weakened and broken himself. He, he's on his way to his city and, and she takes off her widow's garments, like her black mourning clothes, and, and she goes and puts on a, a different dress. I'm sure it was pretty. And, and she covers her face and she sits in this open place beside the road in the city. Now, to you and me, that doesn't mean much, but back then, that was a pretty sure sign of someone who was, let's try to be delicate, a, a lady of the night. 
And that was an understood symbol for, for trying to solicit men as being a lady of the night is to sit out in an open place and cover your face. And, and historians have tried to, tried to excuse this because I don't, I don't want Tamar to be the villain here. I, I don't want her to do something wrong in her desperation, but... The Bible lays it out pretty clearly for us. And some historians have said, well, maybe she was waiting for the third son. Maybe she hoped it would be him. He was her rightful husband anyway. That would have made it okay. Maybe, possibly, she was just spying on Judah and it was just a misunderstanding. She covered her face so she wouldn't be recognized. But the truth is, the Bible gives us every indication that she knew what she was doing and she did it purposely. She went down and, and purposely tried to solicit her father-in-law. This is a story of desperation. And I can't help but make the comparison to another story of desperation in Matthew 9. You don't have to turn there. I'll tell you the story. There's a woman in Matthew 9, and this is, this is when Jesus is walking around preaching. He's begin doing miracles, and all it says is that she has the flow of blood. And, and I think we can all figure out what that means without just, you know, putting it out there. But what you have to understand at this time, you want to talk about being an outcast. This woman was considered unclean. She could not be touched by a man. I mean, literally not have her hand held by a man because she was considered unclean unless she could be purified. And she could never be purified because she always had this continual flow of blood. And so, like Tamar, she's a widow. She'll never have children. She's an outcast of society. She'll probably end up homeless. But she starts to hear about this man, Jesus. And, and these rumors come to her is like Jesus. Jesus calls the blind man to see, and she thinks, "Gee, I wonder. I wonder if he could do that for me." Jesus calls the lame man to get up and walk. In fact, he ran out of there hopping and screaming in joy. And she says, "Well, if he can do that, maybe he could do something for me." And Jesus even brought a man back from the dead. Well, if he can do that, he can fix me. And so she 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 goes out and in secret, and I have this this version of her in my mind where she she covers her face because she's an outcast of society and she doesn't want people to know who she is. And out of desperation, she goes to find Jesus. I want you to look at the difference in how, how Tamar reached her desperation point. When she got to the point and said, I have the ability and I have the responsibility to fix it for myself, but, but this lady with no name in Matthew 9, all we know about her is she said, I can't fix this, but I know who can. And, and, and so she has it in her mind. I'm not even going to talk to him. This man wouldn't talk to me. I'm an outcast in society. Nobody would love me. As he walks by, I'm just going to reach out and, and just touch his coat. Just grab his sleeve for just a second. He'll never know I did it. And this man is so special and so powerful that that, that will fix me. And so ashamedly, she sat there and she waited on the side of the road. And as Jesus walked by, she just reached out and just, just barely touched him. He didn't feel it physically. He felt it spiritually. And Jesus turned around and said, who touched me? And you have to think she's freaking out. I'm not supposed to touch anybody. I'm unclean. I'm unpure. I'm sorry. And she's apologizing. And Jesus goes, your faith has saved you. How do you react in desperation? Do you reach out and try to just barely graze the garment of Jesus Christ? Or do you take it into your own hands and try to fix it and do something stupid? We know, we know where Tamar is here in desperation, try, trying, to, trying to fix her own problem. And as Judah approaches her, there's this, there's this, um, this, this haggering over price. And she says, what are you willing to pay for this? And, and he says, I'll give you a goat. What a price, right? I'll give you this goat, and then we'll go, you know, do whatever, and then, you know, it'll be over with. And, and he said, I don't have it. I'll give you my bracelets right now, but, but uh, here, here's the price it is. Now, let's just talk for a second here about value. Tamar literally has the eyes of God on her. 
beloved by God, made, made in God's holy image. And this is where she's at in her life. She's so broken and she's so desperate and she's so hurting. She says, my value is a goat. What a small price for your body, your soul, and everything that you are, and all those things that we share intimately in that kind of a moment. A goat. A small goat. A worthless goat. And we think, well, Brian, I've never fallen that far. I would never fall that far to think that way. But is it not true that we devalue ourselves when we feel like outcasts? We value ourselves based on the amount of friends we have. We value ourselves based on, on the success we have. We value ourselves based on the appearance that we have. And all of those things that we, we try to sell ourselves for this in this life are just useless goats. I, I, wish, I wish Tamar had known this, and, and I hope that we remember this. The creator of the universe said and proved that you are worth more than a goat. You are worth a spotless white lamb who was nailed to a cross and poured out his blood for you so that he could have you forever. Value is not determined by anything else in society but by the Holy Lamb, by the Son of God, by Jesus Christ. And so when we feel that moment of in value, that's what we should remember. I wish Tamar had a knew that, and I, I hope that I remember that. I hope that you remember that. The story goes on. We'll, we'll kind of finish this up a little bit. The story goes on. She ends up pregnant, which is what she had hoped for. She's ended up pregnant. She's going to have twin boys. It seems like she's almost being rewarded for the problems that she's had in life. It feels like she's, she's almost pulled one over on God. But then it's found out that, hey, Tamar, she's, she's pregnant and she doesn't have a husband. She must have done something bad. And so Judah, not knowing what he had done with his own daughter-in-law, he says, bring her here and let her be burned. Straight out of the Bible. Now, burned does not mean burned to death. That's why some people read it. But burned at this time would be a mark put on her face. Branded, basically, would be a better word so that everybody would know what she had done. And she comes out to Judah. Can you imagine where she's at? This woman who has been broken all of her life, who's been outcast all of her life, who's been hurting all of her life. And here she's about to be punished for a sin by the very person that she committed the sin with. And she pulls out of her pocket. She says, hey, uh, if you want to know who the father of my children are, it's uh, the man who owns this staff and the man who owns the bracelets the bracelets and the staff that Judah had left with her. And so Judah breaks down crying, realizing his own sin, and he says, surely she has been more uh, righteous than I. And this is what happens. Out of, out of this messy, dirty story, one of those children is listed in the lineage of Christ right behind his mother. Uh, that brings us to our last point here, our last take-home truth, is, is God has a plan for the outcast. And listen, if you feel like outcast, it doesn't matter how far you've fallen, it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made, God has a plan for you. 100%, he has a plan for you, even where you are now. And one of the lies of Satan is he says, you've gone too far. I look at this story and I think, that's got to be a mistake. I, I don't want to question God and I don't want to question the Bible, but did he really mean to put this woman in this place of honor? This woman in this lineage of Christ that, that was out of desperation instead of crying out to God, there's not a single semblance in the story that she prayed, she asked God for anything. There's not a single semblance that she's a holy woman, but she made it into this place of honor in the lineage of Jesus. That can't be right. A woman who had a child as a result of prostitution? Jesus Christ deserves better in his lineage. Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, he deserves women of honor in his lineage. He deserves so much more than that. She's not worthy. That's my decision. It's final. I'm going to stand up here and say it. She is not worthy of this place in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's not worthy to be considered the family of my Savior. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? 
That's kind of the point, that she's not supposed to be worthy, that, that, that she is not supposed to be uh, valuable to God. She's unworthy, but God has a plan for her anyway. She's unworthy, but she is loved. And God starts to tell his story this way. He says, I am not ashamed of the outcast. I'm not ashamed of the unworthy. I'm not ashamed of the hurting. And I am not ashamed of the broken. And that is the beginning of the story of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't change throughout his whole ministry. Through his whole time as the Savior of the world, walking around, he continually goes to the outcasts, to the people nobody else loves, to the lepers who are cast out of society, to the people who are so broken they hide their face from others. Jesus goes to them and he says, I love you and you are unworthy, but I love you anyway. He sought out the broken and he sought out the hurting. He sought out the outcast. And he's still seeking out the broken, the hurting, and the outcast today. And listen, he came for you. And before we get all judgy about the story we just read and the decisions this lady made, let me tell you something. You and I are not worthy to be in the family of God either. But by his love and his blood and his sacrifice, we can be called children of God. And that is the point of what this story and this unworthiness is, is that Jesus Christ came to make us his. He came to love us, and he came for you, Brother Danny. So I've got this question as we end today. If we're unworthy, and the Bible spells it out very clearly, and there's someone who loves us enough to die for, someone who loves us enough to say, I don't care what you've done, what, you've, what, you've, what mistakes you've made, why wouldn't we want to be a part of what he's building? All Jesus Christ asked for us. And he did all the work. He took on the ability. He took on the responsibility. All he asked of us is just faith in him. And if you are sitting here this morning and you just haven't got to that moment where I put my faith in the Jesus Christ that calls, sees me as unworthy but loves me enough to make me worthy, I'd love to invite you to come accept him as your Savior. I'd love to come and...